Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in part 2 of an Advent sermon series called Gift Exchange, with this message from December 8th titled, Our Gift to God. In 2014, the Huffington Post carried a very unusual story. Apparently over a two-day period in the month of November, an officer with the police department in Lowell, Michigan, stopped unsuspecting drivers for minor infractions. Infractions like illegally tinted windows that an officer normally wouldn't stop a motorist for. But rather than writing a ticket, the officer made small talk and sneakily asked drivers what they and their children wanted for Christmas. Meanwhile, a group of helpers were standing by at a nearby store. As soon as they heard a driver's Christmas wish, they raced to find, buy, wrap, and deliver the gift to the police officer. So instead of issuing tickets, the officer handed over gifts to these motorists, gifts like a new TV and an electric scooter. One can only imagine the shock, the confusion, the surprise, and eventually the joy felt by these drivers when they received not a traffic ticket, but rather a Christmas gift. At the core of Christmas is the giving of gifts. At Christmas time, giving is thrust into a national frenzy with the spending of billions of dollars. Parents buy gifts for their children. Siblings purchase gifts for each other. Grandparents ensure they get something for their grandchildren. And friends exchange gifts as token of their friendship. And you and I are most certainly aware that giving is at the core of Christianity. It was the Apostle Paul who said, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. We are in a three-part sermon series, which I have titled Gift Exchange, which focuses on giving, this core aspect of the Christian faith. And last Sunday, we began the series by discussing God's gift to us. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's gift to us is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus left the glories of heaven, was born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, walked and ministered on this earth, and then died on a Roman cross for your sin and for my sin. And in so doing, he made it possible for us to pass from death to life. But in order for that to happen, we must accept his free gift of salvation. We can't earn it. We definitely cannot steal it. And we, but we simply must, by faith, receive it. We discover that the gift of God's son is an unsolicited gift. It's an unlimited gift. It's also an unspeakable gift, an unchanging gift, an undeserved gift, And unfortunately, for many people, an unclaimed gift. I think Timothy Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, helps us understand why for many people, this is an unclaimed gift. He writes, Christmas is about receiving presents, but consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper and you find it is another book from another friend, 
overcoming selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting for indeed I'm fat and obnoxious. <laughs> in other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. Perhaps in some occasion you had a friend who figured out you were in a financial trouble and came to you and offered a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. If that was, if that has ever happened to you, you probably found that to receive the gift meant swallowing your pride. And then he goes on to say this, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the son of God himself could save us. God has given to us a wonderful gift in his son, Jesus. But in order to experience all that he has made available to us, we must swallow our pride, admit our hopelessness, our weakness, our lostness, and reach out and take hold of his gift of salvation. If you have not done so, I urge you to accept God's free gift of eternal life. Enter into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus, and begin to experience life the way it was meant to be experienced. And if you have received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, renew your commitment to be his witness, to share with others the good news that the angels proclaim to the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, as we continue in our series, I would have you consider another dimension of this gift exchange, specifically our gift to God. You and I often find ourselves in a dilemma when it comes to giving gifts to someone we, who, who we think has everything. We scratch our heads and we rub our chins and we wonder, what do I get them? What do they need? They seem to have everything and they are in need of nothing. And that is only magnified when it comes to God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 verses 33 to 36 writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. In these verses, Paul answers our question. What do you give the God who has everything? His answer, nothing. You can't give God anything. It's already his. God, by definition, owns everything. It all comes from him, belongs to him. He is a source of everything that exists. All things come to us by means of the channels of blessing that he has established for us. And in the end, everything exists to give all glory to God. Therefore, we can't give God anything. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. And the hills they're standing on are his as well. Anything you have that you might think of giving to God is already his to begin with. You're just using the stuff you have because God enabled you to get it or gave you the smarts or the means to acquire the things that you have. But after telling us at the end of Romans 11, that God owns everything. Paul turns right around and says at the beginning of chapter 12, that there is actually something that we can give God. 
He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, perhaps you have heard and you have studied this verse often. However, we tend to focus on the first part of this verse to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But this morning I would have you take special note of the last phrase of verse one, your spiritual worship, or as other translations state, this is your spiritual act or your spiritual service of worship. As I read this verse, I think Paul is saying that our purpose in life is to worship God And the way we do so is to present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And so on that basis, I would suggest to you that our gift to God is life of consecrated worship. And I think it's vitally important to understand what Paul means when he writes about our spiritual act of worship. What does he have in mind when he uses this term? Often when we hear the word worship... We think of what takes place on Sunday mornings from 10.30 a.m. to about 11.45 a.m. Those things that we are doing this morning. In our order of service, we are urged to worship through song as we are led by a worship team. To worship through giving. To worship through prayer. And to worship through teaching. But is that the extent of worship? Do these practices define worship? Do they get to the very heart of worship? Is worship simply singing some songs, listening to special music, placing a check in the offering plate, listening to a pastoral prayer and a 25 minute sermon? And yes, I only preach about 25 minutes, no longer. It may seem longer, but it's only about 25 minutes. Is worship something we simply repeat for one hour, week after week? Should we feel content because we did our religious duty by attending a weekly worship service? Now, in asking those questions, I am not suggesting that the things I mentioned are not important. It is vitally important that we gather as a fellowship of believers. And obviously, the corporate worship life of the church is central to everything the church is to do in the world. Without the worship of God at the center, the church eventually devolves into a little, little more than a social club or a debating society or a random collection of do-gooders who do nice things for other people. But we need to ask, is this all there is to worship? According to my understanding of scripture, I would say no. Although, as I said earlier, these are expressions of worship, but worship involves so much more. In his book, Purpose Different Life, Rick Warren writes, anthropologists have noted that worship is a universal urge, hardwired by God into the very fiber of our being, an inbuilt need to connect with God. Worship is as natural as eating or breathing. If we fail to worship God, we always find a substitute, even if it ends up being ourselves. The reason God made us with this desire is that he desires worshipers. Jesus said, the father seeks worshipers. In his encounter with the woman at the well, as he engaged with her about worship, Jesus said to her, the father is seeking worshipers. 
If God has hardwired worship into the very fiber of our being, what then is true biblical worship? William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury from 1942 to 1944, said this about worship. He wrote, worship is a submission of all our nature to God. It is a quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore the chief remedy of that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Now that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Perhaps we could summarize it in this way. Worship is a response of all that we are to all that God is. When we worship, we're responding in some way or other to who God is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question. What is the chief end of man? And it continues by answering the question in this way. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You and I were created to glorify God in everything. Which means that the whole purpose of our life is to honor God with our life. And that brings us face to face with worship. One of the main Old Testament words for worship means to bow down. It has the idea of physically bowing down before the Lord. The New Testament contains a Greek version of the same word with the additional idea of bowing down and kissing the ground. That image tells us that worship is a response of the believer to the greatness, to the majesty, and to the magnificence of God. Worship means to declare God's worth. It is to give God the honor that is due him. Or to put in a more contemporary way, it is to pay God the ultimate compliment of referring to him in terms of the honor and majesty that he is worthy to receive. Therefore, Christians are people who gladly, who freely and joyfully worship Jesus Christ. They adore him. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and later the temple were the focal points of worship. It was here that the Israelites approached God and they heard from God. These were said to be the dwelling places of God. And included in the Hebrews' worship of God were the many sacrifices that they offered to him. However, with the coming of Jesus, worship becomes significantly deinstitutionalized, delocalized, and deritualized. The focus of worship is being taken off of ceremony and seasons and places and, and forms and is being shifted to what is happening in the heart of the worshiper, not just on Sunday, but every day and in all of life. Therefore, as a result of that, we are urged, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And whatever you do in word or do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a form of worship commanded in the New Testament. To act in a way that reflects the value of the glory of God. To do everything in the name of Jesus for his glory. In the New Testament, you do not find worship defined in terms of locations and rituals and services. Rather, worship in the New Testament is defined and described as a lifestyle. As a way of life. 
worshiping God to be what you do, is to be what we do for our entire life, seven days a week. Place and form are not of essence. Rather, as Jesus said, we must worship in spirit and in truth. And so this raises an important and significant question. If the essence of worship is not mere outward form, but the inner expression of the heart, what does true worship look like? How does true worship demonstrate itself? I believe the Apostle Paul answers that question by offering us a glimpse into his personal life. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, he gives his mission in life. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of the key words in these verses is the word honored. Your translation may read magnified or exalted. The word means to be shown to be great and glorious. And what Paul is saying is that his eager expectation and hope is that what he does in his body, whether in life or death, will result in the exaltation, the honor, the magnification of Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever he does, he desires to show that Christ is magnificent and that Christ is great. That means that the very essence of worshiping is treasuring Christ. He is to be honored and exalted and magnified more than our family, more than our career, our retirement, our fame, our friends, our lifestyle. Worship is savoring Christ and being satisfied in and with Christ. But how often do we turn things around? We worship our career. We worship our fame. We worship our family. We worship our friends. We worship our lifestyle. These are the things that we exalt in. These are the things we magnify in our life. These are the things that we savor. These are the things that we find delight in. These are the things we believe will make us satisfied. John Piper puts it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Or the essence of pri uh, praising Christ is prizing Christ. Therefore, the very essence of worship is prizing Christ, cherishing Christ, treasuring Christ, being satisfied with Christ. When we treasure Christ as gain, our life, our life is lived as an expression of worship to him. Because to treasure him is to magnify him, to prize him is to exalt him, to be satisfied in him is to honor him. Everything in our life should be focused on Jesus. We ought to rely on him for everything. Without him, we will never be satisfied because nothing in this world will ever satisfy. The apostle Paul understood this. Therefore, he said, whether in life or whether in death, my longing, my passion is to exalt and magnify Jesus Christ. And so how does such worship become an expression of our heart? What steps can we take to move us in that direction of consecrated worship? How can we develop a lifestyle of worship? To answer those questions, let's go back to Romans 12 verse 1. This passage, I believe, contains a key to developing a lifestyle of worship. Paul says, and I read it again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I believe that Paul is saying that a life of worship is developed through surrender. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, surrender every part of your being to God. Surrender is an unpopular word in our culture and society because it implies losing and no one wants to be a loser. It evokes the unpleasant image of admitting defeat in battle, forfeiting a game, yielding to a stronger opponent or of criminals giving themselves into the authorities. Often it is used in a negative context. Our culture, on the other hand, urges us to never give in or to never give up. Rather, the emphasis is on winning, on succeeding, on conquering, not yielding, not submitting, not obeying, and certainly not surrendering. But surrendering to God is a heart of worship. As Paul says, it is a natural response to God's amazing love and mercy. We surrender ourselves to God, not out of fear or duty, but in love because of the mercies he has lavished upon us. God's mercies are everything he has given to us that we don't deserve. Eternal love, eternal grace, the Holy Spirit, everlasting peace, eternal joy, saving faith, comfort, strength, wisdom, hope, patience, kindness, honor, glory, righteousness, security, eternal life, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, freedom, intercession, and much, much more. The knowledge and understanding of these incredible gifts motivate us to surrender our lives to him so that we can live a life of worship. This act of personal surrender is called many things. Some call it consecration. Some say making Jesus Lord of your life or taking up your cross or dying to self and or yielding to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what you call it. What's important is that you do it. And surrendering to God is best demonstrated through obedience. It is saying yes to whatever he may ask us to do. It's impossible to call Jesus Lord of our life and then to refuse to obey him. And so then surrender is not the best way to live. It is the only way to live. Nothing else works. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that it is the most sensible way to serve God. Surrendering to God is not a foolish, emotional impulse but rather a rational, intelligent act, the most responsible and sensible thing you can do that I can do with my life. Surrender is pictured by Paul as offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, let me share with you what Tim Keller writes concerning this phrase. He begins by saying, see, The old sacrifices were no problem. You killed it, and then after that was it. They burnt, and it was over. A living sacrifice means every day, every hour, every moment. Right now, you have have to deliberately, consciously, continually, and perpetually offer yourself to him. It's constant. It's never over. It's intense. You're not living the Christian life until you put to death the idea that you have a right to live as you choose. Spiritual worship is that you put to death the right to live life as you choose. 
You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best what should happen in your life. You put that to death and you can, and you give it to God. It feels like a death to really say, you know, best. And I just trust you. Here's what you say in your word. And I don't like it, but I'm going to do it. I don't choose anymore. It feels like a death, but on the other side, it's life. That's why it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to life. True worship is our personal linking of faith and works. The offering of everyday life to God. And it isn't something that takes place only in church. Real worship sees the whole world as a temple of the living God. And every common deed as an act of worship. Real worship is the offering of everyday life to God. A person may say, I'm going to church to worship God. But he or she should also be able to say, I'm going to the office to worship God. I'm going to the school. I'm going to the garage. I'm going to the garden. I'm going to the field. I'm going to these places to worship God. Worship affects everything we do and everywhere we are. How we conduct ourselves in the office. How we speak in our business affairs. How we treat our neighbors. How we earn, save, and spend our money. Worship is not just a church activity. It's a life activity. Worship is not a sometime thing. It is an all the time occurrence. Worship is not a once a week event. It's a continual lifestyle. It was A.W. Tozer who said, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. What do you give a God who has everything? A God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills that they are standing on. Paul says, give him your worship. Worship which is expressed through surrender based upon his many mercies. Like the Magi who sought out the newborn king. Will you bow before Jesus and present to him your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your, the gift of your Son. Thank you, Father, for the new life that you have instilled in us through faith in him. But Father, we pray that we be so aware of the opportunity, our responsibility, our privilege to give to you our continual worship, to live a lifestyle of worship where we exalt you and magnify you and honor you. Forgive us, Father, when we begin to worship other things and we pour all of our time and energy into things that don't matter, things that are of less importance. For Father, we know that the ultimate goal, the ultimate desire that we ought to have is to give you our complete worship. And so may that linger in our hearts and minds today as we continue to reflect upon this gift exchange. Your gift to us and our gift to you. Father, 
we also want to pray for Paige as she will be flying out to Uganda at the end of this week. We pray that your blessing would be upon her as she now completes this semester of study as well. Father, we just pray for safety in their travel. We pray for um, your, your spirit to rest upon them as they undertake ministry. And Father, we pray that there would be unity amongst the team members. We pray, Father, that as they boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus in their different venues and their different ministries, that they would have the joy of seeing people bow their knee to Jesus, surrender their lives to him, and pledge to them, to him, their continual worship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.